Why don't we open up to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to wrap up chapter 2 finally. As we've been considering Jesus' letters to the churches, when we get back from Israel, I'll be finishing up uh, the last three churches, Lord willing. So be praying for Pastor David. He's going to be teaching the next uh, few weeks uh, here. And we're going to look today at Thyatira, which we find... In uh, verse 18 of Revelation 2, I want to encourage you guys. I know just in the last few weeks, we have visitors every single week at Freedom. Um, in the last few weeks, there's been quite a few people that have come. Some families are starting to say, hey, Freedom's our home now. This is where we want to be. I'd encourage you, and I'll post it on our, our Facebook this week. We did a study a few years back where we looked at all seven of these churches in one study. And it's been the most watched, well, one of the most watched uh, teachings um, that we've had online. And I want to encourage all of you guys to take some time and listen to that study because the approach of it, uh, the word of God is still true, but there's some things that I've purposely haven't gone over again because we've gone there, we've done that. And as we slow down a little bit and we're looking specifically at uh, each church, even this morning, there are things that I addressed about this church uh, concerning things going on in the world, different denominations that we see that I'm not even going to touch on this morning, but it's good to know. So I'll be posting that. I would encourage you guys uh, to, to have a listen to that and study through it. But for us this morning, we're going to get into Revelation chapter 2, looking at I retire here in verse 18. And before we look at the scriptures, I want to ask a few questions. I want to, I want to set the stage, prepare our hearts. And the first question is a very easy one. And I, I, the one thing I'm asking of you guys is be honest with yourself. And the question is, are you a tolerant person? Be honest. Are you a tolerant person? How would you reply if Jesus walked up to you and asked you, are you tolerant? Because we can lie to ourselves, we can't lie to him. He knows the truth. Are we tolerant or not? And here's a question. Is Jesus tolerant? What did Jesus tolerate? What didn't Jesus tolerate? And why does Jesus have a problem with Thyatira being tolerant? You see, the question of tolerance what should and shouldn't be tolerated is one of the issues that really faces our culture today. And as followers of Jesus, we must know how to respond to the question of tolerance and how to respond in such a way when it comes to really the, the question of tolerance is at the center of what Jesus has to say to this church in Thyatira. So verse 18, and to the angel of the church of Thyra, Tyra, right. Well, if you look on the map here, guys, it's unlike the coastal cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, okay, and the important Caesar worship that was taking place in Pergamum, which we've already looked at these churches. And unlike the glory of the cities to come, Thyra, Tyra is the smallest, very small, unknown, a little hidden gem. It's a city that was strategically on a road between Pergamus and the rest of Asia Minor. 
And it really served uh, as the gates to Pergamos, a much bigger and a more important city. And while it was by far the smallest unknown city in here in Revelation, it received the longest word from Jesus. So apparently the city and the church was very important to Jesus. And we would do well ourselves if we listen to what Jesus had to say to them. And again, what have we seen at the end of each one of these letters that Jesus gave to the churches? He who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church is. This is for us, guys, every single one of these. So in verse 18... These things says the son of God whose eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So Jesus is speaking the words of the son of God. So what is healthy about Freedom Fellowship, our church, is that we get into the Bible. We like the word of God. We take the word of God seriously. And even leaving for Israel this week, guess what? I know David, Pastor David, is going to preach the word of God to you guys. And let me say this. Um, anyone that's up here, whoever's preaching, is only as valuable as they are faithful to the word of God. Amen. And this Jesus who is speaking here, did you guys catch it? His eyes are like a flame of fire. So our Jesus sees all things. And later in the text, he says, I am the one who searches the mind and the heart. So nothing is ever hidden from his view. The servants in the church were committing the, the, the hidden sins, okay, going on in the dark. And Jesus, in a very vivid and communicating here, he says, I see all things. Jesus sees all our hidden sins. So we may success, like, successfully hide our sin, Okay, from our spouse, from our kids, our family, even our church family. But Jesus is watching. He's seen. And then we're told he's got feet. These feet are like burnished bronze. Do you guys know that bronze is particularly a really cool metal? Okay, it's strong. It's resistant to corrosion, right? And I think of Jesus then. He's strong. He's immovable, unchanging. He's sovereign. He's powerful. So this Jesus sees all things and he cannot be moved. So to be honest, this isn't the Jesus we often think of, is it, guys? And yet, Jesus in the scriptures is called the lion and the lamb. Often we think of Jesus as the lamb, the gentle sacrifice who laid down his life because he was so loving and kind and gracious. Yet these images here are helping us see the lion. So God, in his might, in his majesty, in his justice, his holiness. So sin cannot be hidden from our Jesus. And our Jesus will not be defeated or conquered or moved. He is ruling and he is reigning over all, over all the universe, guys. Like Oslin in the Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, I'm going to put on a little nerd this morning for you guys. You guys remember when Beaver was explaining Oslin to the kids? Oh, that sounds terrible! They said, and then they asked, and I love what they asked, is he safe? 
And Mr. Beaver replied, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that. So listen, guys, Jesus isn't safe. You do not want to be an enemy of his when he comes back. But he is good. He is the king. He is holy. He is faithful. He is true. And now, even now, guys, even with these blazing eyes of fire, he's watching his bride. And he's aware of all that's going on. And as Jesus looks upon Thyatira here, with these blazing eyes, he sees both the commendable and the sin that was in Thyatira. And then he says, verse 19, I know your works. Love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So somewhere along the line in American Christianity, we have been given this notion that because we're saved by the blood of Jesus, it doesn't matter how we live. That because Jesus' blood atones for our sins, that we don't have to work anymore. That our service and our love or even growing in these things aren't really that important. The church in Thyatira understood that that was not the case. That Jesus doesn't just save us from something, but to something. And that something is a life of works, love, faith, surface, patient endurance. Don't believe me? Check out Ephesians 2.10. And that we should be growing in those. That was the church in Thyatira. Jesus is speaking to working, loving, faithful, serving, enduring, growing Christians here. So these aren't your average Joe Christians, pew potatoes. This church was marked by great works. So how are we doing on works? Would Jesus commend the works of our church? The church was marked by love for one another. How are we doing on love? Would Jesus commend our love? This church was marked by great faith in Jesus. Would Jesus commend our faith? This church was a serving church. They understood to follow Jesus meant that they were not merely on the sidelines while the church staff took care of all the needs that were there. They were serving one another as Jesus served them. So how is our service? How many of us are serving one another in this church? Would Jesus commend our service? I want you guys to listen. This doesn't mean serving in some official capacity or even some ministry in the church, although it may. Okay. The question is, are you as a follower of God who didn't come to be served, but to serve, are you serving in any way? Is your life marked by service to others? Well done, my good and faithful. I want to hear those words from Jesus, guys. 
So this church was enduring pain and suffering. So how are we doing in enduring until he comes? This church was growing more holy than it was the year before. Are we growing in holiness as a church? Are we growing in these areas of love? Are we growing in faith? Are we growing in service? Have you grown in your walk with Jesus in the last year? Be honest. In this Jesus of ours, he commends this church in these areas. I like it. So this church was getting it, and yet he quickly moves on. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and to seduce my servants to sexual or to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So to allow or to tolerate as some of your translations say or to permit as some other translations may say. So while this church was getting it right in so many ways, Jesus had something against them. You allow, he says. So the issue in the church, they tolerated. Now tolerance. Tolerance is such an important yet a complicated, and a complicated issue today in our culture. And it also clearly matters here to Jesus. This is the one sin the entire church was guilty of. You is plural. Look it up. You, the church, all of you, they were guilty of tolerance. So what is tolerance? I'm glad you asked. Oxford English Dictionary says, it's to respect others' beliefs, practices, etc. without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing. So it is to say, I may disagree with you, but I respect your right to believe something different than me. That's in a dictionary. But is that what people actually think about tolerance? Tolerance has changed, hasn't it? Now, if you want to be tolerant, you must say your belief is as valid as my belief. This is significant for Christians but because Christians do not believe that all beliefs are equally valid. We believe in absolutes. We believe that other beliefs are actually wrong. While tolerance used to be respecting other beliefs without necessarily agreeing with them, in our culture today it has shifted to mean accepting all beliefs as being equal. Yet our culture, this belief in absolute truth has become synonymous with being intolerant. And ironically, our culture's new tolerance has become very intolerant to anyone who disagrees with its view of reality and the beliefs that are equally valid. So our culture now says the only truth that must not be tolerated is the one who says that someone's belief is wrong. So Christians, with our view of absolute truth, are dubbed intolerant. But Christians must hold to absolutes. Yet, with a little bit of critical thinking, 
being logical, we can see through relativism. Science display, displays absolute truth, doesn't it? We know that boil, or water boils at 212 degrees Fahrenheit at a sea level. It's never going to happen at 100 degrees. It won't happen at 189 degrees. It always has to be 212. We know that water freezes at 32 degrees. Ain't going to happen at 23 or even 31. Okay? It's going to, or sorry, it's going to be 32 degrees. Um, simply that true. It does freeze at 23 and 31 because it's less than 30. Over, sorry. Um, let's do something a little simpler. Let's consider math for a second. I'm glad I can make you guys laugh today. Um, <clears throat> see, it's truth despite what I might say. You guys get it? It doesn't matter. Truth is truth. Uh, math. We know that the sum of two plus two is four. Well, I think it's three and a half. No, it's four. Doesn't matter what you think. It is four. It's an absolute. Navigation displays absolute truth. Okay, think about this. If a man would ask uh, directions, say, to Miami, Florida, and they said, hey, oh, just take any road you wish. Okay, they all lead there. You would either question his sanity or his truthfulness. A compass will always point to the magnetic north. It seems to be a very narrow view, but a compass is not very broad-minded. And if it were, you guys know what? All the ships, the airplane will be on this next week. Guess what? Would be in danger. <laughs> we like absolutes. And so the point is here, guys, how much more so would the truth about God who created science, math, the world in its ways be absolute? You see how much more so that the truth that he has revealed in his word, the Bible, be absolute. So if God has said it, we can count on it being true. So listen to just two absolute truths that God has declared in the Bible. One that we see that there is one God. That is absolutely true. Jesus Jesus' charge here against Thyatira, he says that you tolerate this woman, Jezebel. So when we think about the question and the issues of tolerance, we often think about how our own world is intolerant of us. We can spend more time critiquing the world, our government, and even unbelieving people living in sin. We know from the prophet Isaiah he tells us in chapter 45, verse 5, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. And again, logic helps us, doesn't it? It, is simply, it simply cannot be true that there is one God and at the same time, many gods. That's not reasonable. It's not logical. So you have a choice. And God has said that there is only one God. And then another one that we see is there's only one way to God. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. It is Him. So if you are logical, 
as there cannot be 100 different numbers that you try to call me on my cell with and hope one of them gets through, there aren't 100 different ways that you can find to get to God. There is one, and you better have the number right. The number is Jesus. So Jesus has spoken the only way to God is to trust in his sacrificial blood and the forgiveness of sins that he alone offers. So there are countless absolute truth claims in the Bible that as Christians, we believe. And in a world that gets tolerance so backwards and where Christians are clearly seen to be bigoted and crazy and intolerant, a very natural and easy response would be to spend our time arguing with the world, proving ourselves through some good logical apologetics, and even getting frustrated with the society that we live in. Yet, in the world that has made this fatal error in regards to tolerance, the church, too, has made a greater error. And the error is that as we are busy having something against the world, Jesus says, I have this against you, the church. You have tolerated sin within the church. So no wonder the church is often distasteful to the onlooking world. Christians must never get the issue of tolerance backwards. We must be tolerant of the world and yet have zero tolerance for our own sin. Jesus calls Christians to be far more tolerant to the world and far less tolerant to those within the church. So Jesus himself not only tolerated sinners, but he loved them. He spent time with them share the good news with them and yet he is far less tolerant of his own people of those who knew god and lived and permitted much sin in their lives so jesus's tolerance was in the right direction tolerance towards the world but not towards sin in the church we're called to be like who jesus Christian, little Christs. So like Jesus, we should not only tolerate the world, but we should love it. Did not God so love the world? They hate us, though. Seems like they're tolerant of everything, except for us as Christians. They'll even talk about God or gods. But we bring up Jesus, man, they want nothing to do with that. Man, a bunch of people who want to stand for him, for life. Man, the Super Bowl tomorrow, we just wanted to put an ad out there that talked about the abortion holocaust and the holocaust survivors of it. What a neat message of hope, of life. And they say no to us, but they'll say yes to sin. Well, guess what, guys? Fox Media is of the world. They don't fear God. They don't know God. Sinners sin. You guys understand that? And though they may hate us because we love truth, because we love God, guess what? Even when they're hating us, doesn't God tell us to love them? To pray for them? That's what we do with them. So, we should be tolerant of other religions. We see a lot 
of different beliefs in the world. We are allowed to disagree. Do you guys know that? And yeah, we can speak truth. Do it in love, though. And we should allow space for them to coexist. Well, I don't like that word coexist. Well, the Bible teaches us that's okay. God doesn't tell us to go and to kill others of different belief systems until they submit and line up with our way of thinking. That's unbiblical, guys. So we should allow them to freely worship. We should especially be tolerant of people outside of the church. Think about the kind of grace and tolerance Jesus uh, exuded to people. And like Jesus, we should be far less tolerant towards ourselves, towards sin, towards the hypocrisy that we see so often within the church. And that leads us to Jesus' words here to Thyatira, what sin was, is that this church was tolerating. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So who was Jezebel? Glad you asked. Well, it seems here that Jesus is talking about a literal woman, someone who is really there. And he's also, I believe, making a reference to the Old Testament. Don't we read of a Jezebel there? Well, the Old Testament Jezebel was a daughter to a foreign king who married Ahab of Israel. And she was infamous for worshiping idols and influencing the king and then all of Israel to practice idol worship and to abandon God. She was a queen who supported the prophets of Baal. You guys remember when they faced off against Elijah up there on Mount Carmel? That was Jezebel. So there's apparently a woman in the church of Thyatira who is likewise leading the church there away from the worship of the true God. And so Jesus calls her that woman Jezebel. I also want you guys to note, he, she calls herself a prophetess. Satan's strategies, catch this guys. His strategies are not always blatant. But he disguises them, <laughs> themselves, he deceives people uh, in things that have to do with the Lord. So Satan, he has always used truth, yet slightly skewed version of that truth to deceive God's people. From the garden, to the false prophets in the Old Testament, to New Testament churches, and even this day, <laughs> Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and he uses false teachers to teach not outright blatant heresies, but subtly skewing the truth of God to lead God's people astray. So what is Jezebel doing? Well, we're told in verse 20 that she is teaching, she, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit sexual immorality, and eat things sacrificed to idols. So do you know how you can tell a true prophet from a false prophet? You look at their fruit. We see that. Pastor Dave's going to be teaching Jude. He's going to be hammering on that point. That's how we know. Look at their lives. Look at their fruit. 
If a prophet is speaking the words of God, it should lead the people of God towards holiness and righteousness. And if a prophet is speaking words that are leading people to sin, then you know they are false. And we see the fruit of Jezebel's teaching was sexual, immorality, and idolatry. So, what was going on? How did this happen? And how does this group of maturing, loving, working Christians end up tolerating a false teacher like this? Well, when we study the context of the city here in this church, there's actually some huge clues for you and I on how Jezebel gained such a foothold here in the church. Economically, again, guys, we talked about them being a trade town. The one strength that this city had was its economics. So because the city there had everyone coming, passing through it, it became the center of commerce, of trading, of production. It produced much bronze, wool, linen, leather, pottery, coins. Slavery was huge there. Um, you guys remember Lydia, the seller of purple that we read about in the book of Acts? Guess where she's from? Thyatira. Because of Thyatira, okay, uh, they had guilds. There were Thyatira guilds. And they existed largely because of, the, of it being this economic center. And it had more trade guilds than any other Asian city. And in that day, people didn't have insurance or social security, so they had what was known as a guild. And this was a group of workers that had some similar craft, and they would contribute to their guild. And if someone ended up getting sick or needed assistance, your guild would be there for you. It was like a union, okay, or an insurance, or like our community being there for one another. So essentially, to survive and to make a living, you had to be a part of a guild. However, the guilds commonly held gatherings. And during these gatherings, they would eat, they would drink, they would eat the meat that was offered to idols, sacrificed to these different trade idols of theirs that related to whatever trade that they were in. So as an act of worship, they would eat, they would drink to these gods, and then it was common practice that for these gatherings, after they had feasted and been drinking in this act of idol worship, to quickly become all sorts of sexual immorality. So imagine you lived in that day. You're there, you bump into a gal by the name of Lydia, and she introduces you to Jesus Christ. And you get saved. What do you do the next time your guild gathers? Where they're invited to come and to worship idols. And to partake in these acts of sexual immorality. What do you do? Do you even go? And if so, okay, uh, you might lose your membership to the guild if you don't come anymore, if you don't show up. So how are you going to survive financially? What are you going to do? In fact, there was one commentator I read, he said, it was the economic suicide to reject the minimum requirements of guild membership. Wow. Now for us guys, let's apply for a moment economic suicide. 
I'm certain that none of you guys are going into work this week where you're asked to worship an idol or to perform some sexual immorality. Okay, I hope not. If not, we need to talk. <laughs> you have a job. But I will ask you this. How often do you consider the way in which you go about your work, how it will honor or dishonor the name of Jesus Christ? Because as we all know, you spend your time at work, which is really important to God, and how you spend that time, okay? Just as much as this morning as you're at church, that's just as important to him. So, for some reason, following Jesus meant that you could lose your job even uh, much more. <laughs> Would you be willing to face ep- economic ruin for the name of Jesus Christ for your faith? Are you willing? You see, that what was, that's what was facing the church here in Thyatira. And so imagine that you are facing these questions and then enters Jezebel. Here she comes on Sunday at church. Okay, you're there. You're sharing your troubles with your brothers and your sisters. And they ask you, have you met Jezebel yet? And you say, no. Who are you talking about? Who is she? Well, she's a prophetess. She can help you. She can teach you things that we haven't been taught here at church. That you can be free in Christ. That we still can actually worship him and also be a part of the guild. She essentially says you can have both. And you think, wow, that's great. In fact, she's having a meeting soon at her house to teach more about this. And when you show up to Jezebel's house, she's going to teach. And she's going to tell us how you can stay in your guild and how you can still practice as a Christian idolatry and immorality too. In fact, because you are forgiven by Jesus, you can also practice these things with her. And this is what the church in Thyatira was tolerating. And it's not hard to see why. Who doesn't want the blessings of Jesus and their sin at the same time? So what's worse is we think that this was a few isolated individuals who were on the fringes of the church. Yet look what the next verse tells us here in verse 20. It says, to teach and to seduce who? My servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So this word is to Jesus' servants. Are you guys catching that? And this word from Jesus was to the mature, the ones that were serving and loving, growing Christians. This was not to a few isolated individuals. And apparently being a good, serving, faithful church member does not make you exempt from tolerating and even participating in such acts. And so let me ask you servants, those of you who have been in the Lord for a while, who are growing and loving and working for Jesus, what are you tolerating? 
Are there people, are there habits that you are okay with? Constant temptation. Yet, do you still even tolerate those things to be around in your life? Are you okay even with a little bit of sin? That's just a little bit in my life. That's okay. Are you okay even flirting? Crossing that boundary with a coworker? Are you online when you shouldn't be? Are you going further with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your fiance, than what the Bible allows? Are you harboring sinful thoughts, lustful thoughts? Are your eyes lingering? Are you okay with just a little bit of sin? None of us are beyond this. These servants of Jesus and Thyra or Tyra, they tolerated it. And these servants, as servants of freedom, are we tolerating sin? May we never listen to the temptation of Satan that says because you're serving, you get a pass on sin. You get a pass on holiness. We can easily think, well, I just spent a few hours pouring out, serving others. I deserve a little extra wiggle room. It's like if, we'll make it a big if, I would go running in the morning, and then, hey, I went for a run. I can eat whatever I want now. No! Man, I'd be worse off probably than, you know, not running at all and just eating normal. You know what I'm saying? So, you guys can pray for me and my running. But Satan will lie, right? He's going to lie to us. He's going to tell you that for a Christian, sin, it's like that. You've worked hard for God. You served and you loved people well. We'll give you a little extra slack. Well, God certainly won't care that much because look at all the stuff that you're doing, how he's using you, how you're serving, the things that are getting done. Look at how much I serve him. There's two fatal flaws in that thinking. Let me share them with you. One being, yet that fatal flaw here is the thinking that somehow our actions could ever justify our sin. Big mistake. Not even your service to Jesus in the church justifies sin. Okay? The second one is sin is tolerable for a Christian. It simply is not, guys. Jesus' blood not only forgives us, but it changes us. It makes us holy. That's why we're told to reckon ourselves dead to sin. Man, if you're set free, why walk in it any longer? You're not a slave, you're free. Brother and sister, we are free. We don't have to sin any longer. Don't let Satan rip you off. And don't let us tolerate that happening to one another. See, true Christians will always be marked by holiness. We're called to be set apart. On the front page of my Bible, I have something written. And it says, the best thing I can do for my people is my personal holiness. 
It's a lot of things you have to do to minister, especially to be a preacher of God's word. A lot of work. A lot of things we're called to, to be in a place of eldership. But let me tell you what, I'm under the conviction I'm not going to be a good brother, a good pastor for you guys if there isn't personal holiness that I'm growing in. Not that it's about perfection or look at how I've arrived. I understand as a Christian what God has called us to. And it's to be set apart, to be holy. And let me tell you what, when I'm in that sweet spot, because I know what sin does. You guys know how quickly we give into a sin and we feel that wall starting to go up? That separation in our relationship to God? Even to the point like, God, where are you? What happened? Okay? That's why it's so important that we're set apart, that we're keeping ourselves in the Lord. Didn't he tell us to be holy as I am holy? That wasn't a suggestion, was it? Okay? It's a command. So it is never okay to use the blood of Jesus as a license to sin. And so Jesus says in verse 21, I gave her time to repent. Isn't Jesus so gracious? I gave her time to repent. He gives time to repent. He offered a way out of her sin. And this is Jesus' heart. Jesus offers all of us this opportunity. He calls all of us, even the worst of us, in the worst of sins to repent. There is hope. There is forgiveness and healing. Even for this woman Jezebel, clearly leading others astray. We're told in 2 Peter, it says, the Lord is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to what? Repentance. That is his heart. So church, if this is you, repent. If you're tolerating far too much, repent. If you've been led astray into hidden sins or even blatant sins, Guess what? Repent. Repentance is changing our mind. That's what it is, guys. From your behavior, your sin, and it's turning to Jesus Christ where we find grace, where we find forgiveness. And yet that does not mean a true Christian is perfect. We will stumble. We will fall in sin. But the mark of a true Christian, guys, is repentance. If you're really born again, truly saved, God's kid, you're going to repent. Christians must be heartbroken over sin. We must hate our sin. We must hate our betrayal of God and, <laughs> and people. We may fall, we may fall many times, but we repent and we turn from sin brokenhearted. That's why I love the gospel. And isn't repentance key to the gospel? Repentance is for all of us, even the worst of sinners. Tuesday night, I'm up in the jail preaching the Olivet Discourse. End time stuff, world conditions, what's going to be happening? Are we living in the last days? The men were just blown away. A lot of questions. I didn't even touch on the forgiveness of God during the study. We talked about many things. And a young man in his 20s, asked me right after study was done, the men began to pick up their chairs to put them back. And he just stayed in his seat. And this man has been in probably seven or eight studies with me now. 
He's never said a word. And he looks at me, tears in his eyes. Can God really forgive anything? That is the first thing I've ever heard out of that man's mouth. It was so cool, guys, because as the truth of the gospel was shared with him, the men in orange, incarcerated, there because of their sin, came around him, and we all began to minister and to share with him the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. You know, that's our God. You see, not a person in this room is too sinful to turn to Jesus. There's not one Christian in this room has blown it so bad they can no longer turn to Jesus. So let me remind us all of the cross. Though all of us have sinned, though all of us have fallen short of the obedience to God in which he's called us to, our God is gracious. That's what I see here. He is slow to anger. He loves us all of us, and he so sent his son, his firstborn, his only, Jesus came, and he lived a perfect life to be a perfect sacrifice to fulfill the law. He never sinned. He was like a perfect spotless lamb, and yet he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and he was slaughtered. He was whipped, beaten, and nailed to a cross. And on that cross, he suffered the wrath of God for the sins of this world and for the sins of all who would turn from their sin and believe and hope in him. And he would forgive sinners like us, no matter how guilty we are. And he would cleanse us white as snow. He would give us his righteousness and he will take our place and we get his. Think about that, guys. That is the gospel. You either believe it or you reject that. There's only one way. Either Jesus was telling the truth or you're calling Jesus a liar. And I would not want to call God a liar. Search it out for yourselves. That's what the scriptures are about. That's what the gospel is about. And it's because of the gospel we're here this morning. That's why we care what Jesus would have to say to the churches. Man, what a gracious call of repentance here. Unbeliever, if you never turn to Jesus, know this. He loves you very much. Very much. He left heaven for you. And he loves you even though you've sinned. Repent of your sin. His heart is not to crush and to punish you. He loves you. He wants to adopt you into his family but we need to turn from our sin, repent of it, and turn to him. So believe that Jesus died on the cross and he took punishment for you. And he rose from the dead, guys. He is alive. So Christian, you haven't blown it too badly. Do Christians really think that? Yeah. Join me for some counseling sessions. I talk with a lot of brothers and sisters who think they've blown it too bad. We repent. We repent in these areas of tolerance and sin, and we remember the great mercy that God has for us. Because while we know God is gracious, and he is so gracious, slow to anger, he's also just, isn't he? We want a fair judge, a good judge. 
a just judge. And there will come a day when if you, if you refuse to repent, he will judge you. Okay? And that's why we repent. So move on here. <laughs> We're seeing these terrifying verses of truth here. But look at the next verses. If we carry on in verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adult, uh, adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children with death. Man, the justice Jesus gives fits the crime. We know that. This might find sound harsh, but it fits the crime. He's essentially saying, you want to be in bed all the time? I'll put you in bed, the bed of sickness. The very place that she was leading herself and others to sin becomes the place of judgment, and she will be thrown into a bed in sickness. So God judges sin. He hates sin. Then Jesus will strike her children dead. This is a pretty hard statement for us to wrestle through. You know, I was trying to find a lot of clarity on this, so I read a bunch of commentators. They are all confused. <laughs> but we know 100% for sure um, that God is just. Whatever this says here, we know from the scriptures that God is just, and he never punishes the innocent. Her children here probably refer to her disciples, her spiritual children in a sense, those that were following uh, her teachings, and will be held accountable for their sin, including their spiritual children. So sin is a big deal, big enough that Jesus said that he would kill the children because of it. And then in verse 23, it goes on to say, And all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. So again, Jesus sees all, right? He sees it all. His eyes pierce the intentions of our minds and even our hearts. Yet the very fact that Jesus is speaking to these churches and to us shows his great love and his care for these churches. He searches the mind and the heart for what? For their good. God cares about these things. He cares enough to speak these things to us. And that's why as a church, we need to take the words of God seriously. We don't want to ignore what Jesus says here because these are uncomfortable things to hear. No, they're good for us to hear. And he's speaking them out of love. So, the fact that Jesus is speaking here really shows his great love. And he's not done yet, okay? You guys see that Jesus goes on to say in verse 23, I will, uh, I will give to each of you according to your works. So this is a difficult verse too. The question here may be, are we saved by our works? Should we ask that question? No, salvation's by grace alone. Justification's by what? Grace alone. Okay, we know that clearly taught in the scriptures. So remember, only by the blood of Jesus that we are saved, forgiven, or made clean. Yet salvation will lead to works. Do you guys know that? We are saved, again, Ephesians 2.10, unto good works. If we're saved, good things are going to happen. So Jesus' blood not only forgives us, but it changes us. It makes us 
holy. And I want to clarify, okay? Works prove our salvation, but they don't earn our salvation. We should see fruit. If you're really a believer, is there good fruit in your lives? Are you walking in those good works that God had prepared beforehand? We should be. So, Jesus here, okay, he says, based on our works, our faithfulness, our faithfulness in this life, we will be rewarded in heaven. So if your life is full of good works because you have been saved, Jesus will reward you. I think that's pretty cool. But I'm saving up and I'm doing all this extra work for my retirement. Well, which retirement are you living for, guys? Man, how many people do we know? Hey, they finally retired. They're going on their trip. Oh, did you hear they just died? What a bummer. They just retired. Man, you were saving for the wrong retirement. <laughs> and then Jesus moves on to address the rest of the church. Look at verse 24. Now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as you or do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put you or put on you no other burden. And there is hope here. Many in the church weren't following this teaching and participating in it. To them, he says, I will put on you no other burden in verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. So this is a call. And you can be a Christian in the presence of a broken world and even in a broken church. I think that's so cool. Simply hold fast to Jesus. That's what we're told to do here. The battle is won. Jesus defeated Satan's sin and death on the cross. And our call is to simply hold firm to Jesus. I'm going to nerd out one more time. Lord of the Rings. At the very end, you guys remember Sam and Frodo there when they reached Mount Doom? Sam holding Frodo. Don't you let go! The victory is won! But Frodo there, he's tired. He is exhausted. He's tempted, even though they succeeded, to just let go, to let it end. The call, don't you let go. That is the call, guys. The battle is won. We simply are called to hold on. Simply hold on. Hold fast to the end. He is coming, guys. Hold on. And if we do not hold fast, we're offered two great promises. Oh, sorry, if we do hold fast. Yeah, look at verse 26. Jesus here, he says, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. You guys know that we will rule with Jesus on his throne? Yeah, read on in the book of Revelation. We will come back. He's literally going to set up a kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. How do we know he's really going to do that? Because he said he's going to do it. He came the first time just like he said he would. 
310 specific prophecies fulfilled to a T. That's just not by chance, guys. God knows what he's doing. If he said he was going to come the first time, is he going to come the second time? Absolutely. In verse 28, it says, And I will give him the morning star. Do you guys know that Jesus himself is the morning star? More than heaven in all of its perfection, or being able one day to see family or friends who've gone before us, or finally to have hair again and be healthy. Do you guys know that Jesus himself is the fountainhead from which the blessings and the gifts flow? He's the reward, guys. He is the source. He is our treasure. That's going to be the best part of heaven. If Jesus is in heaven, I don't want to go. I look forward to seeing him. That's what makes heaven so great, guys. To be with him, perfect love who loved us, who saved us? Wow, can't wait. In the verse 29, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You guys know that Jesus said that his word is spirit and life. His word. We grow by the word. Let me tell you what, guys. Hear Jesus. Hear him. If it don't make sense, you might need to get born again. How many of you guys can testify when you finally bowed the knee, you humbled yourself, you cried out to Jesus to save you. When you were born again, you were able to pick up the Bible and it actually made sense for the first time. Can you guys testify to that? Many of you. Man, I knew the Bible. I was taught the Bible. I thought I got things but it was hard to read. I didn't care for it. I didn't like it. But you get born again. All you want to know is what your dad has to say. Things begin to make sense. They come to life. Have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray. These are hard words, guys. These have not been easy words from our Savior, and yet Jesus is willing to speak to us hard words in warnings for the good of his bride. This is for our benefit. It's kind of like the surgeon. They have that scalpel, little knife. Okay, It cuts. It hurts. But that's okay. Because at the end, a life is saved. Are you willing to let Jesus take the sword of his mouth speak his words to you, to your own heart, to your own life. The question is, are you willing to listen to him? Are you willing to hear the words of Jesus that may hurt for your own good? I am. I sure hope you are. 